Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges affecting Australia and its region. I'm Martin Pierce, and Policy Forum Pod is produced in the beautiful surrounds of Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University. It's a lovely time to be here in spring. You can find out more about Crawford at crawford.anu.edu.au. This is pod number 75, and I'm on solo duties today because my normal co-presenter, Sharon Bessel, is actually on the other side of the table from me because what we're talking about today is directly relevant to a big research project that she's leading here. And I'll get her to explain a bit about that shortly. Today's topic is poverty, or more precisely, how to measure poverty. Everyone from Bill Gates to the United Nations wants to end poverty. We can pretty much all agree it's a bad thing. But what does poverty actually mean? Is it just a matter of income? Does it mean different things for men and women? And when the world's policymakers and politicians think of poverty, does that match the experience of people on the ground who actually suffer from it? I'm delighted today to welcome Dr. Karen Grohn, Senior Director for Gender at the World Bank Group. Karen joined the World Bank in 2014 following a long and distinguished career looking at economics, gender equality and aid effectiveness. And prior to the World Bank led a program at the United Nations University and previously to that, she was Senior Gender Advisor at USAID. She's also been a Senior Scholar and Co-Director of the Gender Equality and Economics Economy Program at the Levy Economics Institute at Bard College, Director of the Poverty Reduction and Economic Governance Team at the International Centre for Research on Women, and Senior Program Officer at the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Phew, that's quite a CV. Welcome, Karen. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. And alongside her, as I said, is Sharon Bessel. You know Sharon as the host of these podcasts, but she's joining us today to tell us about the Individual Deprivation Measure, a project she's leading here at the ANU, which looks at how to properly get the measure of global poverty. Hi, Sharon. Hi, Martin. It's great to be here and very exciting to be on the other side of the mic, if slightly ner- nerve-wracking. <laughs> I'll, try, I'll try and go easy on you. Thank you, Martin. Uh, so before we get to today's discussion, a reminder we are super keen to get your thoughts on this or any of our podcasts. You can reach us on Twitter, where we are Apps Policy Forum. You can find us on Facebook, where we are Asia Pacific Policy Society, or just send us an email. Go old school. We are podcast at policyforum.net. Coming up in part two, we're going to be going through some of your comments and questions, and there's some really interesting stuff in there. So do stick around and please keep them coming in. We absolutely love hearing from you. But for now, let's talk about poverty. Karen, I'd like to 
pick your brains about your career, first of all. Before joining the World Bank, you have worked with a range of organisations, as I said, and you've also published some important work on women's empowerment and the importance of the link between gender relations and macroeconomic development. Tell us a little about your journey to becoming a senior director of the World Bank. Uh, yes, I've had a non-traditional uh, career path, to say the least. Um, and I've probably been in more institutions and in more um, places than a lot of other people. I um, I think of myself as a person who's a, a connector and a bridge between worlds. So the policy world, the academic world, and frankly, the activist world, because I started my career as a women's rights activist um, when I was in graduate school. I... Um, I had not planned to become an economist. Uh, it was accidental, but I actually I, I think I owe that uh, that choice to um, somebody who's here in Australia, Elizabeth Reed, who I met when I was an intern uh, at the UN on the UN conference to mark the mid-decade of of uh, women, at, it, which was held in Copenhagen, and. Uh, that experience made me think, you know, economics makes the world go around. I need to understand it. And I met these phenomenal women economists, uh, Gita Sen from India and Lourdes Benaria from Spain. And I changed my whole life trajectory. I, I thought I had wanted to be a lawyer. Um, instead, I went to study economics. And I was told in graduate school, um, you can't uh, be a feminist. You can't work on gender. If you really want to be an economist, you have to really be an economist. Um, and I'm really happy to say that many years later, that situation has changed. We actually have a branch of economics called feminist economics, of which I'm a proud part. But my heart has always been in activism, but I'm also really interested in changing institutions. And I've done a lot of research thinking about institutional issues, and I was asked um, to put those ideas into practice, which is why I joined the U.S. government at USAID. I was also in academia at American University, and um, and when the World Bank opened up this position, uh, it, they made it really difficult to say no. And I thought, you know, it's you make choices in your life. Sometimes you're on the outside, and you can put the pressure on and think about um, ideas that can infiltrate uh, on the inside. But sometimes you have to be on the inside as well and figure out how you bring uh, you move institutions. And so for me, it's been fascinating to be on the outside of big institutions, whether the UN agencies or governments, or to be in them in places like uh, the bank. I, I'll probably write a book about this one day. I look forward to reading that. And you talked about institutions. You are in, you in a, a very interesting institution at the moment. And I want to talk a little bit more about that shortly. But whilst we're on the subject of sort of career trajectories, Sharon, I want to bring you in here. You're now, as I said, leading a very large research project on poverty measurement. Can you tell us about how this connects to your past work, and uh, which was very much focused on participatory research, not working with large-scale surveys. Yeah, so this is a really different space for me. So this is a very large project, um, as you say. It's a, a project that's developing a way of measuring multidimensional poverty that's sensitive to gender. Um, it's a project that's funded by the Australian Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, and the ANU is doing this in partnership with the International Women's Development Agency. And this project began way back in 2009 um, as an Australian Research Council um, linkage grant. 
And I wasn't one of the people who conceptualised it. Um, Thomas Poggy, a global justice philosopher, and Alison Jagger, a wonderful feminist philosopher, um, came up with the, well, didn't come up with the idea, but I guess had many conversations critiquing the way in which poverty is measured, but from a philosophical perspective. Um, and a lot of the work around poverty measurement is done by economists. Um, Thomas was putting together a grant and he, he said to me, would I be interested in being involved? My work was very participatory. I work primarily with children. I'd begun my academic career in with an interest in international relations. Um, and I went to do my PhD research in Indonesia um, to look at the way in which international norms on child labour had influenced domestic policy. And within about three days of being in Indonesia, realised that the most important stakeholders were children uh, and working children, and no one was asking them about their lives. So that began my career using participatory methods to work with children and other marginalised groups. So when Thomas came to me and said, hmm, if you were going to develop a measure of poverty, how would you do it? It, I fairly obviously said I'd begin with participatory research and ask people what it is that matters to them. And so that's how we developed the original research. And from that, we developed a series of surveys, an individual survey, a household level and a dwelling level survey um, that have become the individual deprivation measure. But I think for me, what's most exciting about this measure is that it began with that participatory research. Um, and when I look back at the measure, I think that was probably my most important contribution by putting it on that track to begin with. So it's grounded in the priorities and experiences of people who live in poverty. It is a very exciting project and we'll drill down a little more into it a little later. But I just want to come back to your role in the World Bank, Karen. In the 1970s and 1980s, the World Bank was criticised for its advocacy, I mean, some would say imposition of structural adjustments projects that uh, you know, many said impacted negatively on the poor. But today's the bank mission. Today, the bank's mission is to end extreme poverty and to promote shared prosperity. How has the World Bank changed over time? And where does it sit today in regards to the debates around poverty reduction and economic growth and inequality? Um, like the president of the bank, I was one of those on the outside who uh, was a critic of bank policies in the years um, that you mentioned. In fact, I um, wrote a – I was part of a group of economists who published a special issue in a, in a development journal called World Development that was strongly critical of structural adjustment and other um, policy measures precisely because of the distributional impact and the negative uh, consequences for, for the poor. Uh, the bank has really changed. I think the bank made a, you know, has a sea change. And when I was invited to join the bank personally, it was something that I had to think very carefully about. In fact, I told the story yesterday that when I was interviewed for the position, I was asked the question, um, give us an example of a decision that put your reputation at risk. And I said to the panel interviewing me, if you were to offer me this position and I were to take it, I would really put my reputation at risk. Um, but I have to say that um, I don't think that ha my reputation is at risk because the bank is a, an institution that has clearly embraced the goal of poverty reduction. Um, a lot of the work that the bank does now is to try to focus on um, – on uh, uh, interventions and assistance and finance for those who are really in the bottom 40%. Um, 
it has the twin goals of extreme poverty reduction and shared prosperity. And what shared prosperity means is not just income group uh, growth for the top one or five percent of the population, but really growth of the those in the bottom, the the growth of the incomes of those in the bottom uh, quartiles of the population at least as faster, you know, faster than the rest. And and the other thing I think that um, was important about the bank is that the there's a recognition that issues of inequality have to be tackled simultaneously. Inequality can be very harmful um, to economic growth for a number of reasons. Uh, inequality has multiple dimensions, um, including uh, a lot of social uh, exclusion. So it's exclusion of, of those who maybe um, have a disability or exclusion of those by virtue of their ethnicity or their race. Um, and of course, largely the exclusion of women, particularly lower women who are lower uh, income. And the bank has really embraced an agenda of equality uh, in its multiple uh, dimensions. So I, I think that's something that is really important um, and, and made me feel uh, much more comfortable about being part of this institution. And I feel if I can bring the my own um, research background and experience uh, in terms of in the form of real solutions for people, not just talk, but real things that the bank can actually do through its lending, for instance, in the transport sector or uh, in social protection programs, um, we put the bank on much firmer footing. But what about the bank's accountability? Because, you know, like most governments, the World Bank is an institution with enormous influence over the lives of millions of people. But unlike governments, the World Bank leaders aren't democratically elected. Just how accountable is the World Bank for its decisions? I think the bank has really also improved a lot in this regard over time. I, I didn't mention earlier, I mean, a lot of the practices that um, – some of the practices that the bank had in the past have really uh, gone by the wayside. For instance, the bank does not impose conditionalities on countries. That's very, very last century. The bank engages in policy dialogue with countries and um, the philosophy is really countries are in the driver's seat for for their own um, – their country's um, development. But the, the issue of accountability I think is really important and I, I think the bank – you know, probably no institution is perfect on accountability but the bank has mechanisms in place and has a philosophy about being a accountable and so – some, what are some of the mechanisms and processes? Um, we do have a, a, le a legal mechanism called the inspection panel. So uh, communities that might have uh, complaints, for instance, regarding resettlement or um, violation of rights can actually make claims. It's a legal body. There's an, uh, due diligence. There's investigation. Uh, and the bank uh, follows the judgment of, of the inspection panel. It's an independent accountability mechanism. Uh, we have regular interactions with civil society organizations. I think it's really important to talk to people in the countries where we work and to engage in, in dialogue with, this, with civil society. But we also have other stakeholders that we have to work with, whether it's the private sector, whether it's our partners in the UN system. And I think together as part of this ecosystem uh, and this web of relationships, um, we get scrutinized from many quarters. Um, We've become and we respond. I think we um, have become much more accountable for our actions. The, a few years ago, um, we had an incident in Uganda uh, where we financed um, a 
some kilometers of roads. And uh, the Ministry of, uh, of Roads, of Rural Works, uh, contracted with some private firms to construct the roads. And uh, the behavior of the contractors wasn't always appropriate. And uh, we had an incident where workers um, had sexual relations with girls under age. And we actually did have an ins uh, inspection panel case. Um, it took a while for us actually to respond. We we know that we were not perfect in, in the response. But once the inspection panel case, not only did we become fully responsible, but we've been incredibly transparent. Um, President Kim um, suspended the operation. We entered immediately into negotiations with the Uganda government about what to do. We set up a task force with um, very eminent persons, including um, undersecretary generals, to help us explore our own policies and procedures for pre preventing sexual harassment, sexual abuse, sexual exploitation. Um, we took to heart this task force recommendations. We set up our own internal action plan. And we've gone through a process over the last year and a half of changing the way we work, changing the way we do business um, in our procurement, uh, in our contracting, in our requirements for our uh, anybody who's on a World Bank finance project to follow a code of conduct. We have put in place multiple mechanisms for gre uh, grievance redress. Uh, and probably most importantly, we have the pr principle of survivor-centered approaches. And we've done this very publicly and very transparently. And for me, this is probably the best example of holding ourselves to account and um, really following through on trying to do the right thing. Karen, you're Senior Director for Gender at the World Bank. Why does gender matter to poverty reduction? I mean, first and foremost, of course, we all know it, it is a rights issue and it's an issue of, of, um, of, of justice, uh, uh, you know, in terms of half of the world's population. But the bank uh, is, has been well positioned, as Sharon said. Uh, it's an evidence-based uh, institution. And through the kind of research uh, that it has produced over the years, contributed to, along with others in academic circles, there's a really strong investment case for gender equality. Uh, we know that um, gender inequality, first of all, that economic growth does not automatically close gaps between men and women, and we need complementary policies. We need systematic actions. Uh, we need appropriate regulation. We need a lot of things to help make this happen. But more importantly, we also know that um, sometimes economic growth can widen inequality. So what we really uh, gender inequalities. But on the other side, if we were to narrow gaps between males and females in important domains, um, the investment case is that there will be important returns in terms of productivity growth, which translate into overall economic growth, productivity growth at the sector level. For instance, if you close gaps between uh, male and female farmers in access to inputs, seeds, access to finance credit, new technology, you actually have better outcomes for the sector. You can increase agricultural growth. And we've done a series of reports, uh, for instance, uh, from three countries in sub-Saharan Africa that actually quantify the productivity benefits of closing gaps in access uh, to in, uh, inputs. We recently released a report um, uh, more generally uh, about the costs of gender inequality and lifetime earnings. 
And it's a staggering figure. It's about $163 trillion that countries are losing out because of gender differences over in earnings over the lifetime. That translates into about $23,000 per person in the you know, of all of the countries um, in this study. And, you know, you think about this, that that's an incredible waste of potential capacity that countries are leaving on the table. I think the evidence uh, has really built that there's a lot of um, investment potential, um, but there's a lot that we have to do um, to get there. And, and, the, and the costs, I think, um, of course, you know, we can think that the costs are economic, but the costs are also real to people. They're real to people, to, to individuals' well-being, to individuals' emotional and physical um, and, and social development. The costs can be health. The costs can be um, cultural. So um, we don't always quantify those, but you know, there's the cost side, but the benefit side too. The quantification and the data behind this is obviously very important. And Sharon, there's a great deal of focus globally about tracking progress towards the sustainable development goals. And the problem of the gender data gap, what is the gender data gap and what's being done to address it? The sustainable development goals have a very large number of indicators attached to them. Um, they have targets and then indicators. And part of tracking progress towards achieving those goals by 2030 is being able to measure what we're achieving. The problem is we don't necessarily have the means of collecting data or understanding how we are making progress or whether we're making progress. And in some ways, this, particularly in relation to poverty, is a legacy issue of how we've thought about and how we've measured poverty in the past. So we've tended to think about poverty as being um, associated with households. We've measured generally at the level of the household. Um, and we've often asked the head of the household which is usually a male, and the idea of the head of the household embodies a, a whole lot of you know, fairly sexist perspectives on the way in which the house, the society, the world is structured, and assuming that it's it's usually a man that holds headship. It's not always the case. Um, and so we've collected data at that level, and we've often then tried to disaggregate by sex. What we've rarely done is collected data at the individual level to understand the way in which poverty is playing out for individuals, both men and women, across the life course in order to understand the gender dimensions of poverty. And because we've measured at the household level, because we've tended to ask the head of household who tends to be a male, then our data are really incomplete. So there's lots of there's lots that we just don't know about poverty. It's such an important uh, issue uh, for most countries around the world. There are still too many gender data gaps. Um, it's it's not just the sex disaggregated information, whether it's on the assets, for instance, the land or the housing that men and women themselves own or control or make decisions about. It's about many other domains of data that are actually missing. And we have wonderful data, not perfect, but good data uh, in the sectors of education and health. But we're really missing data on the economic dimensions of men and women's lives. And we've started to do a lot of work in this area with – there's a wonderful uh, organization called Data2x, the mission of which is to actually fill these gender data gaps, to be able to invest in building the capacity of countries' statistical systems – 
to regularly collect data, whether it's through household surveys or labor force surveys or enterprise surveys, to get a much more complete picture. We, for the first time at the bank, have added questions to our doing business survey on women-owned firms. We weren't asking questions about their profitability, their sales, their employment growth. Uh, we have uh, started to collect something called Women, Business, and the Law, which is the first most comprehensive compendium of every single country's legal structure and regulatory structure that embodies uh, legal discrimination, differential treatment between males and females that prevent them from participating in economic life. And it's pretty amazing when you go to this database and you look at a country and it tells you whether or not a woman needs a husband's name to open a bank account or she needs to have permission to travel outside the country. Over 100 countries have at least one law on their books that is legal to treat men and women differently. And this is cost to the economy. I think if we're, if we're really trying to understand those gaps between men and women, we also need to think beyond just the, the legal structures that are in place. And the laws are important. And so being able to capture those laws that are discriminatory really matters. But if I just give you an example of the work that we've done, um, so within the individual deprivation measure, we have a module on voice. And we, or some, a set of questions we ask are around whether or not people are able to engage in uh, decision making within their community. Now, in many societies, there are no legal prohibitions in place that would stop women from engaging in community decision making. But what we found in the participatory research and what we, we, we see across um, the literature more broadly is that in some some societies, and we found this particularly in Southern Africa, that women need a man in order to be able to access those community decision-making processes. Now, there's no legal prohibition on women's engagement, but if there isn't a man to facilitate it or to carry the view of the household, then women's views are completely excluded. And that's a real problem in a context, for example, where lots of men migrate for work. And so you have women running the household but not able to engage in those community decision-making processes. So we need to find ways of capturing the, 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 the legal discriminations and the structural barriers to equality. But we also need to be able to take account of those informal processes and the attitudes that also exclude women and really matter in terms of their day-to-day -day yeah, lives. Capturing the issue of social norms and the ways that people internalize and act on social norms is really, really critical. I think that's a, an area of active research research right now. Because ultimately, while you're absolutely right, laws matter. It's really that uh, they, they only go so far. It's really the implementation of those laws. It's the enforcement of those laws. It's the uh, interpretation by communities, the awareness of laws. And it's really the probably the, the normative issue that ultimately governs behavior. And I don't think we fully tackled um, all of those issues. It does sound like both the World Bank and the IDM is starting to ask the right kind of questions to fill these data gaps. And on the subject of asking the right kind of questions, we reached out to our audience on Twitter and asked if they had any questions that they would like to put to the two of you today. And we've got a question from Luth Caballero. And Luth, I apologize if I've totally mangled the pronunciation of your name. Luth was on Twitter. And uh, she writes, hi, in Peru, uh, there is a discussion about including gender as a policy in our curriculum from basic education. What's the experience of the World Bank about this? And do 
demand this as a minimum standard of the countries that you work with? Uh, the bank actually doesn't finance many projects dealing with curricula reform. That's something uh, we, we fund a lot of work in education. But I do have to say that um, I actually really think that we could do much better in, um, in improving the quality of, of schooling and learning. And I think as part of curriculum efforts, we can do much more work to really challenge to address the issue of social norms, rigid nor you know norms of masculinity and femininity and sex roles. We can do much more in, in the content of the curriculum, particularly as it relates to uh, norms that are permissive of violence, whether it's gender-based violence or other violence. I think that has to start really, really early. There's lots of really interesting experimentation and um, models around the world, including in Peru, um, as well as elsewhere, starting early in preschool and kindergarten uh, for this norms change and, and things like conflict and violence um, resolution. And I, I also myself think that we need to do better uh, as we go through the school system to, to embed these issues in the ways that we teach our curricula. Um, we need to think about it in the ways that we teach math, in the way that we teach science. You know, one of the things that bothers me a lot is the fact that girls start to get tracked as well as boys get tracked starting in middle school into different disciplines. That's why we see a gender gap in the STEM field, science, technology, engineering, and math. And I think uh, we need to think about our curricula to reduce that kind of tracking because that tracking actually has economic, negative economic consequences. So good question. And I hope that uh, we can actually post some really great resources of where uh, instances of curricula reform are actually addressing these issues. Can I just come in on, on that issue of education? Um, and going back to the issue of measurement, you know, we have lots of good data around education. Lots of it is still focused um, either on enrollment or attendance, or it's focused on the outcomes. Um, particularly in OECD countries, we have lots of measures. PISA is an example for tracking outcomes. What we have less of in terms of measures and perhaps pay less attention to, although this is an emerging issue, is the experience of children during their school years, the experience that children have of education. And Karen raised the issue of the curricula that take on issues of violence and address those issues. But if we're going to do that, we need to start with the experience children have of school. And for many children, for many children, school is a really violent place. Teachers are not well trained. They have very few resources. They're trying to deal with 40 children in a dark classroom with, with no teaching materials. And so resorting to violent methods of discipline is, is often the only thing they feel able to do. So it's not a blaming of teachers, but there is an urgent need to think about both the quality of education, but the experience that children have of education. And I think that's beginning to emerge, but we're not moving near fast enough. Um, and when we start to talk about early childhood education and bringing children into the institution of education at a younger age, then it becomes really critical that we face these issues of what kinds of institutions we're bringing children into. We have some new measures of education, actually, on education outcomes that we're actually introducing today. Um, during the bank fund annual meetings, we have something called quality adjusted years of schooling. It's not a perfect measure, but it actually looks at what kids are coming out of school with. And the picture is a little depressing because not all kids are actually coming out of school with the right type of learning that will really help them to perform well, particularly in terms of the economy of the future. And I think we need to invest a lot more. 
Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Or resources into improving the quality um, of, of schooling, the quality of learning uh, itself. But this also includes exactly the, these issues of um, violence in the classroom and, and changes in the curriculum. One of the, the things that we ask people in the individual deprivation measure is around years of schooling, but we also have a, 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 a very simple numeracy calculation that we ask people to do um, and ask people to read and then write a simple sentence. On our early data that we're starting to get through now from um, the work that was just completed in Indonesia, um, fairly worrying in terms of even people with a, a tertiary level qualification really struggling on those very basic numeracy and literacy tests. So I think this issue that Karen raises is really fundamentally important in terms of what are what are the learning outcomes of education. And, you know, for the poor, education is so important. You know, they place so much faith in it, but it's often failing them. Karen, you've been involved in recent work looking at poverty across the life course. What are you finding in terms of how poverty plays out across people's lives? That's a really great question, and I, I'm, I'm really pleased to um, say that. We actually have a report that's going to be released on international um, the International Day Against Poverty, which is October 17th. We're releasing um, a report on poverty reduction and shared prosperity. Uh, and this is a brand new uh, piece of work uh, for the bank in that um, it's the first time the bank has actually considered poverty at the individual level and at the multidimensional level. And uh, we're, I'm really pleased that the bank has been able to um, to do this. So one of the things that we have, have done is to uh, mine the data sets. Sharon was mentioning earlier that most data is collected at the household level. Uh, but we have, a, we have a huge amount of data there, but that we haven't actually looked at in terms of exploring the, com- um, the characteristics of the individuals who live in those households. And we can actually do much uh, more work to actually mine that data. And when we have done that, we found that actually poverty across the life cycle is something that's really, really important. For women, poverty actually peaks in their reproductive years. And that um, is probably not surprising because women face trade-offs more than men in that period of time between employment, participating in paid employment, and raising children. And those trade-offs can be actually quite uh, stark. Uh, for both men uh, and women, poverty um, starts uh, in childhood. It increases. But for women, it particularly peaks, as I said, at the reproductive years, less so for men. And then it actually starts uh, to decline. But these these trends are actually not, uh, not linear. And they um, actually vary according to marital status. It ver- they vary according to employment status. I think this is something that lo- understanding the life cycle is really important for policymakers who target social protection. So we know at what point in time we need to have resources put in place or programs or services for individuals to be able um, to access. The other thing that we've done is um, for the first time is to actually go inside the household. 
And um, we've started uh, to think about individual, like like Sharon's project, individual level data co- uh, collection, particularly on uh, not all of the dimensions that are in the individual deprivation measure, but on really key c- um, components. Uh, one of the uh, of poverty, including obviously education and health and nutrition and so forth. But one of the things that the bank does, which is difficult, I think, for others to do in other surveys, we are very good at collecting monetary measures of poverty, consumption, expenditure. And we're starting to think about – and that's very challenging to do at the individual level. It's hard to – you know, when people sit down and, and share food uh, or, you know, everybody lives in, in the same dwelling to figure out, you know, for consumption, who consumes what, what the benefit actually is. But we're trying a number of approaches, uh, both econometric, which is, you know, analytical techniques as well as direct data um, collection to try to understand inequality in, in consumption within the household. And I think when we look at the work that we're doing, we we do see that women are slightly worse off than men in terms of consumption expenditure, but children in particular, and Sharon mentioned this, the issue is really about children. And, and I think it's really important to focus on how we actually think about children who disproportionately live uh, in poor households. Karen, I want to move on from talking about measuring poverty to talking about tackling poverty. We've discussed why it's important to measure poverty properly and what we know about poverty from the data. But what are we learning about the most effective ways to actually address it? Where's the low-hanging fruit? I think there's probably a number, you know, there's a number of pathways out of poverty. I mean, I think one of the first issues is how do we have, countries need to have jobs. So so what is the right type of, um, how do we diversify, how do economies diversify? How do they have the right type of job, job creation? Uh, by which people actually can access um, the types of uh, jobs or employment by which they can gain skills, they can move up the economic ladder. So first and foremost, I think, is some kind are really those macro policies that uh, promote not just employment creation, but the right type of employment creation um, directed toward lower-skilled, unskilled, uh, growing-skilled uh, population. I think a second uh, important piece of this is providing access to finance. And there's too many countries around the world that don't yet have developed financial systems uh, where, uh, and this is changing with the advent of mobile technology. So, of course, we've all heard about, well, many of us in the rich world and actually many more people in emerging markets now have mobile phones, smartphones, and so forth. The ability to use mobile technology to do uh, to to have a, a savings account to make payments to be able to access social protection, which is the next element uh, of something that is really important, is really really critical. But having the means to access finance is so important because it means you can start a business, you can engage in economic activity, and, and that's something that I think is particularly important for women. Um, it gives them bargaining power in 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 ways that are important. I think if you don't have uh, un- uh, strong social protection systems, we'll never. I mean, we, which is something that many people in the rich world take for granted. Uh, moving toward uh, towards um, systems that provide social insurance, as well as whether it's direct cash or access to key public services. All of things, all of these issues are are fundamental um, to get out of poverty. The low hanging fruit before us right now is to be able to use technology is to really think about how we we harness the gains of the digital economy because it it enables companies it enables countries it enables individuals to leapfrog over 
issues that were really challenging in the physical space. And when you look at countries like China and you look at what Alibaba did through its digital e-commerce platforms and you think about its companion financial company, Ant Capital, the fact that people could get loans in three seconds for economic activity, whole swaths of China have come out of poverty fairly quickly. So I think the digital transformation is something we need to watch. Some exciting, potentially low-hanging fruit there. I've got a final question that I'd like to address to both of you, but perhaps I'll put it to you first, Sharon. Sustainable Development Goal 1 is about ending all forms of poverty for women, men and children everywhere by 2030. How realistic is that? I'm not sure I'm necessarily optimistic that it can be fully achieved by 2030. What I think is very promising is the fact that this is now an issue on which the world's attention is focused. Um, you know, Karen's talked about the work that the World Bank's doing um, that you know wasn't happening sort of 30 years ago. So I think we're seeing a transformation in the focus of a, a number of really important institutions. We're seeing governments focusing quite explicitly on how they can address poverty. So whether we achieve that goal, which is very ambitious by 2030 or not, I'm, I'm not sure is possible. But I do think the fact that we are on track to um, to that objective is a really positive thing. And that's a real shift in terms of global priorities. Um, but I think there's, there's a lot of thinking that needs to be done and there's a lot of action that then needs to take place if we're going to get anywhere near that. So we see, you know, as, as Karen said, the emergence of um, a range of social protection programs that will help us move towards that. Um, but we, I don't think we can rest on our laurels that we now have, for example, a mechanism like conditional cash transfers because we, we see in some places they're not quite hitting the mark. We need to create employment, as Karen says, as a critical way of achieving that goal. But we also need to think about the trade-offs that the poor make um, between earning an income and getting that employment and what that might mean in terms of the type of work, the shame and stigma that might come with it, um, or the exploitation and the working conditions that might come with it. So I think we really need, if we're going to achieve that goal of ending poverty for everyone everywhere, we really need to think deeply about what this means, what it is to live a life of poverty, and how we think about that in terms of income, which is critical, but how we think of everything else that comes along with poverty, the violence, the structural violence, the shame, the stigma, the trade-offs that people make. So we'll only get there if we think about this from a people-centred and a rights-based perspective. Martin, maybe I can just add to that and give you a sense of where we've come in terms of past trends. So, um, you know, the bank has been monitoring global poverty reduction for many years, monetary poverty. And over the last 25 years, the rate of monetary poverty has dropped from more than 35%. This was in 1990 to 10% in in 2015. That's a pretty impressive uh, reduction. That is the equivalent of moving more than a billion people out of extreme poverty. And that progress is clearly impressive, but it still means that, you know, 10% in 2015, that's about 736 million people that still live in extreme poverty today. And if the rate of poverty uh, reduction, you know, to go below 3%, which is... uh, really the last mile. That last mile involves a lot more investment. It involves a lot more concerted policy effort uh, and programmatic effort because um, 
I just think that we cannot be complacent. You know, we've seen great progress, but um, the last mile is always the hardest, and and we really need to get there. Do you feel confident that that we can get get there over that over that last mile? Can we ad- address that? sort of hardcore people living in extreme poverty? Well, you know, I think the forecast from this report is that, you know, maybe we can get to 3% by 2030. Um, Below that, I I don't know. Um, I I think it takes a lot more than what we're doing now. Uh, For me, it, it means we can't do business as usual. And I think that as part of the efforts, along with what we've talked about uh, in terms of employment creation and uh, adequate social protection, we have to factor in the effects of climate. We have to factor in the effects of um, environmental destruction because these are so much more uh, pernicious for the for the poor, those who live in poverty, because they're much more vulnerable to the effects of of climate change uh, and environmental destruction. And I think it means really shaking up the business model and shaking up the policy model and the investment model, frankly. I think we also need to keep in mind that if we do reach a goal on a monetary target by 2030, um, we'll, we'll have achieved a great deal in terms of moving people out of extreme poverty. But there will still be a very large proportion of people or a very large number of of people who are living just above that poverty line if we're thinking about an income-based poverty line. And so even if we achieve that goal by 2030, um, the goal isn't fully achieved. You know, the journey isn't finished because we will still have people who are living in um, either very difficult circumstances, even if they're not formally defined as being income poor, or we'll have people living in situations of vulnerability and precarity. Um, and we, we will still need to keep our eye on this issue, to keep active, to keep working beyond 2020, even if we achieve the goal as it's And framed. you know, this is the other issue. It's not static. I mean, people may move out of poverty, but a life circumstance, a particular event can push them back in, particularly when you're, quote unquote, close to that line. A lot of people cycle in and out. So for me, it's also about uh, ensuring that we have the institutional building blocks and we have really helped people develop uh, the capacity to be much more resilient in terms of um, staying above the line once they get there. Well, I think we've heard plenty of reasons for optimism and plenty of uh, 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 thoughts and suggestions about further work that we need to do in order to reach that target. I'd like to thank you both for your time, for coming in. Sharon, it's been a pleasure having you on this side of the table. Thank you. It's been great to be here and great to have the opportunity to talk with Karen. And Karen, thank you so much for coming in and sharing your time and expertise on this really important subject. Thank you so very much for having me. Welcome back and thank you once again to Karen Groan for joining us today. And I'm delighted to say I still have Sharon Bessel with me. Hello again, Sharon. It's good to still be here. (laughs) And we're going to go through uh, some of your questions and comments in a second. So stick around for that because we've got some really good stuff. But Sharon, first of all, what did you make of today's discussion? What sort of key take-out points did you get from it? I really enjoyed the conversation. I mean, obviously, it's a, there are a set of issues that I'm working on, so I get very excited about these things. But to have the opportunity to hear Karen reflect not just on issues of poverty and gender equality, but also the, the journey that she described both herself and the World Bank is taking, I, I thought was just fascinating to hear. A couple of take-home points um, for me 
One is around what we need to measure. And Karen made a comment about the importance of measuring at the individual level, not at the household, because when we measure at the household level, we mask what's happening in between. We don't know um, whether men, women, boys and girls are sharing equally. We make assumptions about equal distribution, but we know those assumptions are are not right. Um, And Karen also mentioned the importance of measuring poverty in a multi-dimensional way, not just income. So it's really exciting that those debates are taking place and that there are developments around that. For us, it's really exciting that we're actually at the forefront of this work. So the work that we've been doing around the individual deprivation measure has produced the world's first individual level, multi-dimensional measure of poverty. Um, We've used it in a number of countries. We've just completed a study in Indonesia. We're analysing the data. We're about to work in South Africa, about to work in Myanmar. So this is one of those moments as a researcher where you do feel incredibly excited because we're we're genuinely at the forefront of world debates and we're leading the discussions around these issues. So that's very exciting. Yeah, so lots of really interesting, interesting points there. And if you, our listeners, are interested in finding out any more about these types of issues, um, perhaps you might want to consider doing a degree here at Crawford School. There's, you could do the Master of Public Policy. We've got two specialisations which sort of touch on some of the issues that we've talked about today. We've got a specialisation in global development policy or a specialisation in social policy. And Sharon, actually, you teach into the global development policy specialisation. So what, what do students learn in that? I do. I mean, it's, it's a great specialisation. The MPP is a great degree. Um, But the specialisation in global development policy really looks in depth at some of the issues that we've been talking about today. Um, And I think really important for people who want a career in policy. Um, One of the things that, that our students learn is what questions to ask. You know, we've talked a lot about data today, um, but it's important not to just accept the data, to say, what does this tell us? But what sits behind the data? You know, data are often based on surveys. Surveys are often very value laden. So how do you pull that apart? How do you analyse that? And then how do you make the pathways to thinking about policy, to thinking about the kinds of things that we were talking about, social protection programs, job creation programs? Um, They're the kinds of things that we address in that specialisation. And we look at the politics and the values and the assumptions and attitudes that sit behind some of the big global debates today. And that's fascinating stuff. It is fascinating stuff and lots of really big, important questions in there. And uh, we want to hear your big, important questions, listeners. Let us know what you thought of the discussion. Uh, You can send us uh, an email by at podcast at policyforum.net. You can get in contact with us on Twitter where we are apps policy forum or you can find us on Facebook where we are Asia Pacific Policy Society. Do get in touch. We really love hearing from you and uh, thanks to everyone who has got in contact with us and especially those people who get in contact with us and suggest an idea for what we might actually like to do on the podcast. We love hearing those types of uh, suggestions. So at the end of each podcast, we go through and answer some of the questions and uh, comments that we've received over the previous week. Um, 
And the first one that I want to touch on is on a piece that was published on Policy Forum. And I saw you tweeting about this, Sharon. It was called A Red Flag for Homicide. It was by Heather Douglas. And it looked at the issue of non-consensual, non-fatal strangulation, which is a significant risk factor for a woman being killed by her partner. Um, and whether it should be made, you know, a standalone criminal offence. And we've got a comment from Julio, possibly Julio, uh, who says, this article states that most victims of non-fatal strangulation are women. While I would believe this is true, it is maybe also that men don't feel encouraged enough to report when it happens to them. Society still depicts men as strong, inverted quotes, uh, and questions would be raised as to why uh, we would ev- he would even let that happen to them. Is strangulation more gendered than other forms of domestic violence? Sharon, what do you think about that? Well, I, I think it's a, there are really interesting set of questions that, that Julio raises. I mean, to me, the, um, the article that, that Heather Douglas has, has written raises broader issues. I mean, we, we know from the statistics, um, the appalling incidence of, um, murder inter- from intimate partners, um, and that women are generally the victims of that. Um, the need to address that is absolutely critical. And so looking for what Heather calls the red flags, I think is really important. And I'd certainly defer to the experts in terms of what those red, red flags are. But you know, we, we need to address all forms of domestic violence and we need to do something about the, the rate um, of intimate partner murders. And, and it's generally women and also children who are often the victims of that. But in relation to Julio's question, I think this is a really important one. Domestic violence is such a terrible thing because it is so intimate. It's hard for people to escape. It absolutely shapes and constrains and destroys their lives. Um, The statistics suggest that overwhelmingly it's women who are subject to that and, and also children. But it's no less awful when it's a man that's experiencing that kind of domestic violence. So I think we we need to think of this in a couple of ways. One is who is most affected and how do we respond, but also not forgetting those people who are also affected, but perhaps are in a minority of, of in terms of, of the percentages. Um, and where, as Julio points out, social expectations mean that it's harder for some particular individuals and particularly men to seek um, support when they are experiencing violence. So I think we need to think about domestic violence in terms of who it is that's experiencing those problems. And that means thinking about how men are supported when, when they are exposed to domestic violence. But we can't, lose fact, fa- we can't lose focus of the fact that overwhelmingly it's women who are subjected to domestic violence. So I'm always really nervous of this becoming a, a kind of an either or, or, you know, let's worry about the men and not worry about the women. We need to worry about people who are subjected to violence and we need to look at the data that we've got to go back to that issue of data to see where we need to focus our attentions, um, but also to, to think about who's being missed. I think we also need to be thinking about what are the drivers 
of violence. So if I can perhaps move away from Julio's question to some of the data that we found through the individual deprivation measure, you know, we have a question around violence. We don't ask about location or perpetrator because we're not looking at family violence. Um, we ask about frequency. And what we've found in some of the studies that we've done is that while women report um, quite worrying levels of violence, so do men. But for men, the literature tells us it's often public violence that they're facing. So for young men, public violence is often a, a major issue, and particularly for young men living in violence. Uh, sorry, living in contexts of poverty or marginalisation. So I don't want to take the spotlight away from the importance of family and domestic violence, but I think we also need to think of the drivers of that. So if we have a context of broader social violence and men are being exposed to that, then we need to think about how that relates to domestic violence. So I think this is such a complex issue, but it's a, it's, it's a series of webs. And so we need to think not just about an ultimate action, but the structural context and what the drivers are and how we try to stop violence in the home, but more broadly across society so that people can live safe lives. Yeah, that's some very important and good points there. And it's an excellent piece by Heather Douglas. I would absolutely recommend you giving it a read. As I said, it's called A Red Flag for Homicide, and we will leave a link to it in the show notes for this podcast. The next one I want to talk about, complete change of direction here, is the podcast that we put out last week, which uh, featured uh, Kirsty O'Connell and Sarah Bice and was uh, brilliantly hosted by Nikki Lovegrove. And it looked at building bridges between research and industry. And the summary of the podcast was basically that over $20 billion worth of Australian infrastructure projects over the last decade were cancelled or delayed or mothballed due to community backlash. And uh, essentially it talked about, you know, how the infrastructure aid and age needs a new model of community engagement and uh, what Sarah talked about as co-designed research could help light the way. And we've got a couple of comments here. The first from Stephen Nagy, who uh, is one of the friends of Policy Forum, is a frequent writer for Policy Forum. Uh, and he wrote, while pure scholarship is still important, it's also important to be communicators, to find policy implications, to propose applications to research. And there was also a comment from Laura. And Laura writes, you talk about infrastructure projects being delayed like it's a bad thing. To me, it's a sign that community resistance to developer greed and political thought bubbles is growing more powerful. That's something to celebrate, not a problem to fix. What do you think about that, Sharon? Well, great comments. And it was a great podcast. Um, and in terms of Stephen's point, um, I think he's right. But I, And I think the, the issue here is that there is not one right way of doing research. There's not one model of research. We, we need a mix of models to address different issues. So it's really exciting, I think, to, 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 to explore ideas of co-designed research. You know, that's, that's happening. Sarah Bice has done some great work in that area. Um, the work that, that we've done around poverty has been co-designed with civil society organisations and with communities. So, you know, lots of really exciting opportunities to do that kind of co-designed work. 
But I think there is, as Stephen says, still scope for research that is exploratory, that explores big ideas and that takes an issue that maybe no one else is talking about and does research on it. And that's how we, we kind of get progress. That's how we get knowledge. Um, so what, know, what about Laura's comment? What about, what about stopping infrastructure projects? It depends, doesn't it? <laughs> I mean, if it's uh, the Adani mine, yeah, I'd be with Laura saying, you know, that kind of protest. It's probably a really important thing for communities, for the environment. I think the the idea behind co-designed research is that you address some of those issues early on. You know, you understand what... Um, what the barriers are going to be, what the problems are going to be, and you bring community, industry, and so on along. You bring the communities on board with you. Yeah, but of course, that doesn't take account of competing political, economic, and other interests. Sometimes you just can't bring any, everyone along. So, in a democracy, research doesn't do everything. And I think Laura's right that the the scope for people to protest is important, um, and sometimes those those discussions necessarily come after a policy decision's been made. Ideally, it would all happen before, but sometimes it doesn't work that way. It makes me think so much. We've got, a, a, obviously, an election coming up reasonably soon. We don't know when in Australia, but, you know, in Australia, it feels like an election is always just around the corner. An and election or a coup. Yeah, election or a coup, that's right. Um, and as soon as an election is announced, of course, then we get into conversations about pork barrelling, about, you know, politicians being out there making grand commitments, often infrastructure commitments, roads or whatever it is, in marginal electorates that they they want to win. Do you think what Sarah is talking about in terms of this sort of co-designed research might negate some of the danger of that kind of pork barrelling that happens around infrastructure? And if so, how do you think politicians are going to feel about that? Well, this goes back to the issue of interests, doesn't it? I think what, what Sarah's talking about can help to address that. And, and importantly, I think what that approach opens the opportunity for is much longer term thinking about investment in infrastructure. You know, we, we really need long term planning around infrastructure, around a whole range of issues in Australia. Um, and the, the the brevity of the political cycle means that we, we don't have the scope for that long term planning. So I think the, the kind of approach that Sarah's trying to take um, and advocating that we take is really important in terms of thinking about things long term when it's going to take you know more than 3 years to actually put a policy in place or develop a piece of infrastructure or to shift the economy or the society in a particular direction but that takes from our political leaders a complete shift in thinking where it's no longer about point scoring it's no longer about winning the next election it's actually about doing some good for the society that they've been elected to represent so i would encourage our political leaders to listen to the podcast and think about how that sits with short term election cycles and pork barreling and maybe think a little bit longer term and a little bit more about the public good perhaps they'd be you know, willing to give up a little bit of agency around infrastructure decisions now they've got themselves a brand new billboard at uh, Sydney uh, Sydney Harbour. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. That opens up some very disturbing possibilities for political and other forms of advertising. Well, there were some absolutely great comments. So thank you, a huge thank you to everyone who uh, sent them in. Uh, and a reminder to please keep 
doing so. We love hearing from you. Uh, that includes suggestions for future episodes of Policy Forum Pod. We're all ears if you've got an idea for us. You can reach us on Twitter, Apps Policy Forum, on Facebook, Asia Pacific Policy Society, or shoot us through an email, podcast at policyforum.net. And if you enjoyed today's episode, then perhaps you might want to do two very quick things. Number one, subscribe. That's a big help to us. And number two, while you're there, perhaps leave us a quick review on iTunes. It only takes about 30 seconds. Uh, All you need to do is find that fifth star and press that, and it'll be a huge help to us in getting the word out about this podcast. We'll be back next week with another Policy Forum pod. But until then, from me, Martin Beers, cheerio. And bye-bye from me. Have you ever Googled your own name? Prepare for a shock because your personal info, including addresses and phone numbers, is all out there. It's all harvested by data brokers and sold legally. Aura is a personal digital security service that scans the internet for your sensitive information and provides a full suite of privacy-enhancing tools. For a limited time, Aura is offering listeners a 14-day free trial at Aura.com safety. That's A-U-R-A dot safety to learn more and activate the 14-day trial period.